This is Mapping Healthy Minds, a podcast that explores the intersection of mental health and daily life. I'm licensed marriage and family therapist Justin Lewis. I'm also your host. And on today's episode, I will be talking with Mary Foley. Dr. Mary Foley has a doctorate of psychology, and she is also a licensed professional counselor. She is the director of Merriman House, which is a domestic violence uh, center here in Paducah. She and I talk about her uh, research when it comes to what she covered on secondary trauma with people who work in facilities that treat things such as domestic violence. We talked about the problem of domestic violence and um, a little bit more. So, So before we get into the interview, please know that Mapping Healthy Minds is brought to you by Compass Counseling. Compass Counseling has three uh, brick-and-mortar locations, one in Paducah, one in Owensboro, and one in Henderson, Kentucky. And we also have a presence throughout all of Kentucky on the World Wide Web. You can make an appointment with a therapist who is very well suited to meet your needs on our website, compasscounseling.com, where you can call or text or send in a request to set up an appointment with one of our therapists. So if you are interested in doing that, compasscounseling.com is where to go. If you're interested in hearing the rest of my interview with Mary Foley, then stay tuned right now. I am glad that I do have a counselor on the podcast today because I'm feeling a little depressed because I have two cav- two cavities in my mouth right now. So I'm going to be conscious about everything I eat. They weren't bothering me. That's the thing too. It's they, like, those are the worst, the ones that don't bother, but yet are there and show so up and give like, you a bad report. Part of me want, yeah, part of me wants to be like, so do I need to get them filled? You know, like uh-huh. it's like the obvious thing is a dentist tells you you have a cavity, so you're supposed to get it filled. But I, really didn't think to ask the question why do I need to get this field it's not bothering me in our field right it's like if something in your life is not a problem then yes. it's that's how you we determine whether or not it's yes. a problem is if this thing in your life is significantly causing some negativity mm-hmm. but you and know. so many times right as mental health professionals we do wish that people would come on in at that first sort of twinge that there's a problem (laughs) right Um, maybe if they had checkups and we could find cavities they'd be better (laughs) off too (laughs) so yes i think the take home there is yes you should have gone to the sooner but you didn't we're glad you went Mm -hmm. today and sometimes people should come on in for services when they are um you know not operating as much as efficiently as they would like yeah and that's one of the messages that we try to promote is that everybody has mental health yes so it's just kind of like the same deal as having physical health yes we all will agree that we have physical health and there's things that we need to do to take care of it mm-hmm. six month checkups for mm-hmm. your teeth mm-hmm. is a good example it seems yeah but also making sure that you're doing things to take care of your mental health is equally as important and i think even acknowledging that in some fields you know, we give a little more compassion for people that might be anxious to do it or uncomfortable to do it. So, you know, yeah. dentistry, you know, you, you know, people don't like to go to the dentist who wants to do that. Right. I know. But, but we don't give sometimes ourselves that same grace and compassion that who really is just so excited about going to start that kind of relationship with a mm-hmm. mental health professional. And yet it's so important. 
I have to remember that because I come into this office every day mm-hmm. and sit here and talk to people. Mm-hmm. But for people that come in the the first time, yes. I don't think about how intimidating it might be yes. or how hard it was for them to go through the process mm-hmm. uh, naturally. So mm-hmm. I really make it an effort to remember that and sometimes try to, if I can visually see their discomfort or even if mm-hmm. they verbalize it, I try to affirm them that they've had uh, mm-hmm. a good display of courage by just being willing to mm-hmm. show up in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I think you're right there that being able to recognize the um, uh, bravery that mm-hmm. it might take to take that step mm-hmm. is maybe one of the barriers that could be overcome for more people acting sooner. We also have a statistic out there that it takes seven years from the first time somebody thinks maybe I should go to get mental health treatment before they wow. actually do it. Do it. So that's the average. So that's, I pull that stat out for people all the time. And I'm like, well, because most everybody's like, mm-hmm. I should have done this sooner. Yes. Right. That's yes. always the line yeah. that we get. No <laughs> yeah. one is like, it was the exact right time or this was before <laughs> I needed it. You know, it's I always, wish I would have waited till next everybody, week. <laughs> you're right. Everybody's always like, man, I really wish I had done this sooner. Yeah. So I give, give them that stat. Usually it's less than seven years at this person. So they're like, well, at least you're ahead of the curve, you know? Exactly. <laughs> but then to also think about the resiliency of the human spirit that we could manage some things for seven years yeah maybe not managing them well or maybe they've had unintended health consequences to us that we didn't realize but I mean you know I'm sure like you some of the things that I hear about and see in a day Mm -hmm. I'm just blown away at how long right Mm -hmm. individuals have carried that or not been able to verbalize that or unpack that or whatever right for you know just the ability of us sometimes to our detriment sure to to manage things to a point where you know really if we could um get help sooner that would be so much better it's like we can carry it just enough to make it to the next day and then the week is over and then time just kind of slips by you know and then finally there's some breaking point that happens or finally something is advertised in a way that makes it comfortable mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it what it is, but yeah, you make a good point about the resiliency factor there. So, how long have you been doing? Uh, how long have you been in the helping profession? I've been in the helping profession since two thousand and six. Okay, um, I graduated from Murray State, um, their clinical psychology program, and. Um, started actually providing services at a residential boys treatment facility okay. in Hopkinsville. So drove, you know, quite a bit of a yeah, distance sure. um, and really kind of got my feet wet there and, and then just sort of different things unfolded and I got into the nonprofit sector, but yeah, I've been doing it for a bit. Yeah. 2000 and you said six mm-hmm. graduated Murray state with mm-hmm. your master's. Mm-hmm. I was there just a few years behind getting my bachelor's at Murray State mm-hmm. at that time. So, but it was not in psychology. Okay. So you've been at it a little while now uh, and you started off doing the boys home. What, what all their kind of experiences uh, do you have leading up until now as far as your, um, well, you know, it was one of, one of those situations where I actually started out in college wanting to be a journalism major. Mm. Um, I think there was something about the news. I love the news, Mm. (laughs) whether that's (laughs) pro or con, I'm not sure, 
but I really maybe also think it was, it's just, you have an aptitude for hearing crappy stuff. Apparently (laughs) (laughs) just kind of shifted that. (laughs) That's probably fair. Um, or maybe it's just the storytelling aspect of just, I don't, I don't really know. It just intrigued me. And so I did radio for a while and then I went to do television and honest to goodness, um, I had just a uh, just a moment. Um, I was working a terrible shift at the television station. It was really early in the morning, and I was, you know, went behind the scenes doing whatever. And I just had this moment where I knocked over all of the. At that time, they were on tapes. That makes me feel old. Um, I knocked them all over. For and, my younger listeners, yeah. tapes preceded <laughs> CDs, which preceded <laughs> digital. It's, bad. Uh, it's okay. bad. Way back when the dinosaurs had to come in <laughs> to actually make the news. And I, and they were calling. We had these big carts, and you would slide these VHS tapes. That's even worse. <laughs> slide them in, and then my job would be to take them down to the tape department or uh, you know, so they could play. Right. And they were calling for that where are the tapes? Cause I was late with them. I was taking me too long right. and I knocked them all over Ooh. and they just went out of order. And I, for, and this is looking back for whatever reason, I thought, I can't do this. I can't do this. I don't want to do this. The stress of it. So I went into mental health. <laughs> oh, there's some real dissonance there, but, um, I don't, I can't deal with my personal mental health. So I'm going to focus on other people's right. deficiencies. That is exactly right. If we and all got down to the root, that's where we'd, uh, that's where, that's where we we'd find land. ourselves. That is so for sure. fair. Mm-hmm. And so when I went back, um, for, uh, mental health, for psychology, um, and, and went to work at this residential boys home, you know, I enjoyed it. It, it, it was not something that I probably wanted to do long term. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I enjoyed it and I learned a lot yeah. about family units and about kids that were in a lot of distress. And I got a call, an opportunity to, to work closer to home at our local rape crisis center mm-hmm. as an educator. And so not mm-hmm. a mental health position, but it was a way to get my foot in the door. And right. I, my job was to go into school systems and present prevention programming and, hmm. you know, things like that. And that was maybe like in the fall and I was, so I was brand new to the organization and within a few months, as often happens with nonprofit, there was a significant turnover and the director of that program left Yeah, and the staff at the time said, well, you know, why don't you apply? And still to this day, I look back at that and I think, I said, well, I don't, I don't know even how to, like, I can't do that. Like, I don't even know how to do that. Why would I do that? I can't even carry tapes at a TV station. How am I going to direct something? <laughs> how am I going to be in charge of something? And, um, and you know what, Justin, the truth is that board of directors, I mean, looking back, they took a risk on yeah. me. I mean, I was in my mid to late twenties, probably uh. late twenties. I didn't have any nonprofit experience. I didn't have any management experience. Matter of fact, I'm not even sure had any life experience worth. Um, and I fell in love with the nonprofit sector, yeah. um, with the helping profession that, that allowed me to really work for a mission, a cause and not a company. Mm-hmm. And it really was my sort of, I found my stride there. And so I really focused on administration and have been in some sort of only actually nonprofit since that time and have been in a director role for the majority of that time and then was able to 
um, use the knowledge of mental health to inform programming and to educate the community and then would see clients as I could. Right. Um, and so eventually my path led me to um, Merriman House and, okay. and, and where I am and what I'm doing now. Okay. So Rape Crisis Center, that used to be Merriman, right? No, actually, no. no. Mm-hmm. So in the Western Kentucky region, and folks may not know this, so there is... Some this, don't. Yeah, so the state <laughs> One of, person doesn't. <laughs> so you, I'm glad you called this a meeting so we could tell you what's That's in right. your community. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the... Board member might need to know this kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, <laughs> well, I think a lot of people get um, confused, okay. and I think there's good reason for that. Yeah. So in the state of Kentucky, um, we are actually, sometimes we lag behind, but in this case, we are... Um, They were very forward thinking. The General Assembly has a designated domestic crisis provider, a designated rape crisis provider, and a designated child advocacy provider Mm -hmm. in every ad district across the state. And the idea was that the General Assembly wanted to issue contracts across the state that if you were a victim in Western Kentucky, so in maybe Paducah or Hickman or Carlisle, Mm -hmm. or you were a victim of a crime in Eastern Kentucky, that the services you're able to access really shouldn't change based on what region you're in. Sure. So for um, the purchase region, uh, Merriman House is your domestic crisis provider, and Lotus is your rape crisis child advocacy provider. So different services, but certainly um, many of the issues do overlap. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Good to know. Personally and to anyone. Yeah that may be listening. I want to circle back around to something and kind of talk about it. You said that you really find a passion in the nonprofit Mm -hmm. world Mm -hmm. rather than being at a company. Can you Mm -hmm. talk more about what it is about the nonprofit world that you so uh, connect with? You know, I think um, for me, I found that I found meaning, and I know you can find meaning when you work for any organization. It doesn't have to be nonprofit. But I think it was also the accessibility that whoever you are, um, if you don't have income, if you do have income, that that in this particular field, crime really is no respecter of persons sure. or socioeconomic status or any of those things. And so it really is the great leveler. <laughs> yeah. And so to be able to work for an organization that really does execute the mission, right. Mm-hmm. Of affecting or, or treating victims of crime, then it really, that really is what drives the service. So it's not necessarily the profit margin or the population or the marketing plan or, and none of those things are bad. Right. It was just for me, um, there, those services are free to whomever needs them. That is a victim of crime. Mm-hmm. And, that is the purpose of coming. And so there's that common purpose, right? Right. That common um, problem and actively working with others with Mm -hmm. like minds around a solution and building a better community. So, Mm. um, and then I also think nonprofit has some unique um, challenges, right? Um, (laughs) Indeed. it, It gives me the opportunity to see a problem and then strategize how to solve that, but rarely is it going to be on the back of one person, right? So not one person is going to be a part of that success. Um, It's going to take the business community, the church community, the professional community, the volunteer community. So it really does just allow me to, I feel like, reach into all kinds of aspects of our our community and find people that are passionate 
you have to tap into enthusiasm for the sake of service. Yes. In yes. a nonprofit world. Yes. I mean, you, you've got to show people so, that there's a need. Yeah, and correct. Right. Are you just are a you different know? incentive? Right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Not to get too much into therapy here, but thinking about how you connect with that, especially the, the journalism piece that you were talking mm-hmm. about, about story mm-hmm. kind of and developing story and mm-hmm. being drawn to that. It's kind of nonprofit world can be more of the storyline, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like a continual mm-hmm. ongoing sort of thing, uh, even more mm-hmm. maybe than some other uh, business sector, private sector, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think people can find their place in the story because right. it's a human issue for us. Not, I know nonprofits all serve different issues, right? For sure. Merriman House or for domestic violence, you know, it, it really is helping people find their place in the story. It just not seems every, like it, the nonprofit in general is set up to live, yes, be that way yes. uh, long term. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to, to, to see that... Um, I think no matter where you are in the story, whether you're the one needing a service or, or you're the one giving, or you're the one um, contributing a, a non, you know, like a time or a resource or a donation, yeah. or whether you're the the legislator that <laughs> wants to make change and sure. you know, so I just think there's so many places in the nonprofit sector for people to find their place in the story, mm-hmm. um, and I love that because I think it just really lets us intersect with such a diverse group of people. Mm. Um, and so, and you know, there's that's never one true. day that's the same as the day before. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't get bored. That's, that's for sure. true. That is true. Of course that's life, but it's yeah, I, I totally get that in the nonprofit world. It's trying to make it happen a lot. Mm-hmm. You don't know what kind of barriers are going to mm-hmm. stand in the way. Well, good. It sounds like you're well suited for the position that you're in. <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> you seem to be. You've done it for a little bit now, done at it least. For a while. Yeah. Other people saw that in you early on. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so you recently got your PhD, right? It's a Saudi, so it's not oh, a PhD. Okay. Well, um, it is right. a Never mind then. <laughs> Forget that. I wanted to say, oh, I get that response often, but not usually. <laughs> From the general public, but now I'm feeling even less and less impressed with my own degree. But I, I get it. <laughs> just kidding. But in the academic world, I certainly feel that. Oh, you don't have a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's not like it's an EDD or anything. <laughs> Bless their hearts, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, no, that's great. Why don't you take this time to explain what minor difference might be there? Yeah. So, you know, a SADI is a doctor of psychology. So it's a, what we would just call a, an applied degree or a practice degree more than um, a research-based right. degree or not going to go teach necessarily in the classroom. Yeah. Although I, we might could, we're really not our forte. So yeah. um, a SADI is really that practical applied degree where we, we practice psychology um, and and contribute to the field in a very practically applied way. Yeah. Okay, good. And so you still have your dissertation. Yes. In spite yes. of the fact that it's not a research-based. Yes, so they like to the say work. you're not a research-based, but hey, do Here this big are. research yeah, project, exactly. right? Here you are doing a research exactly. project. That's right. And so why don't you talk a little bit about what yours was? Well, my dissertation, I'll just put it in a way that maybe isn't as boring as it sounds, <laughs> but um, my dissertation was really looking at um, we, you know, we hear a lot or we have heard and those that are listening that are in the field or related fields are going to hear something called trauma informed care and really became this buzzword. 
um, not only for hospital settings, but for social work and foster care. And we just began to hear a lot about trauma-informed care, trauma-informed care. And so that buzzword, um, I, I always felt like it just told part of the story. There was just this something missing for me as somebody that has worked in this field. Mm. Um, I can train staff on how to be informed about the effects of trauma and how that should inform their care. Mm-hmm. But what about the caregivers? Mm-hmm. Um, I hear a lot about trauma-informed care that way and secondary mm-hmm. trauma. And then what responsibility or tools or both does the organization have mm. to make sure that the environment it is expecting or creating um, also protects against secondary trauma and further re-traumatization? And so for me... I thought, I wonder, does it matter if, if I go into an organization and I am trauma informed and I have all these good self-care techniques mm. and, and mm-hmm. I'm providing good treatment um, and I'm listening to content that's traumatic, does it matter what type of organization that I work for? So what mm. are their policies and procedures like? What, what are the documentation requirements? You know, mm-hmm. what is the, um, the culture like? All those kinds of things. Does it really make a difference and I think the short answer is yes. Okay. Um, and so what the what I studied and what I found is um, there are lots of variables that go into making somebody more at risk to experience secondary trauma. So, so I think I would define that as um, it, it would be sort of the same construct as post-traumatic stress disorder. So somebody that has secondary trauma is sensing a shift in the way they view the world. So mm-hmm. the world now looks different to them. And it looks different to them because of the trauma content they have been listening to and involved with. So there is a permanent change in their sort of view of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there are things that make people more at risk for that. So maybe it's um, their age or if they have their own trauma history Mm -hmm. certainly is a factor. Maybe they're not equipped. Um, So there's that. But then what we know is that the more trauma informed the organization is, then that is also a protective barrier for the employees. And so I really took more of an administrative slash clinical approach, and it would be my hope to build on that research to begin to be able to really inform nonprofits about things they can do to protect and build resilient employees and, um, you know, and create an environment that is manageable um, Mm -hmm. and healthy um, and not maybe just one sided one focus like we just focus on the fact that secondary trauma exists Mm -hmm. so we lessen their caseload or we reduce (laughs) their but really we could everybody thinks that's the answer for self-care is less work yes yes (laughs) no that's not it at all right yeah right and so this study really looked at you know what kinds of things if you could if you only have one shot or or one small batch of resources what could employers really focus on and it really is on this idea of service delivery and the guidelines and policies around how you do that Um, so it could be the documentation requirements maybe are too cumbersome or maybe it's staff don't feel like they have clear and consistent guidance on how to respond to problems or maybe Mm. it's that they feel that they don't they don't have any input in problem solving, or mm. maybe it's that the staff that are working with clients don't feel that they they can change the rules or the guidelines to meet no the client need. No flexibility. flexibility. Yeah. So, 
if you if you're it's sort of the study just sort of landed at if you only have sort of this one place you can start you should start here this right. is where we see the biggest reduction in secondary trauma symptoms is when we focus here and so that's really what the study was about and um I'm hopeful that it's, I'm hoping that it's helpful. And it, it really was with the state of Kentucky's domestic violence program. So it was only DV advocates across the state of Kentucky. Um, and we measured that several ways. A couple of thoughts on that. One is, it seems to me like buzzwords are probably one of my pet peeves. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so like, unfortunately when something becomes a buzzword, it almost means nothing at all. Mm -hmm. And trauma really is up on the edge of becoming mm-hmm. buzz and everything mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. everything bad that happens to you is traumatic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, man, I got stopped at two red lights today. I had my driving trauma, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yes. to be a little bit extreme about it, but still, I mean, uh-huh. there's like it's trauma. I just mm-hmm. I can't, not everything can be trauma because mm-hmm. if everything is trauma, mm-hmm. nothing is trauma. Well, and I also think something can be trauma and still not be traumatic. Right. right, we have people that are, that experience traumas, but yeah. they don't have a traumatic or a stress response to that trauma. Yeah. Right. So I even think there's another degree to it. Yeah, maybe we could just call that something different. Then I don't yes. know. Yes, I don't know what it um, would be. So with your, you know, another piece of that is telling people that they're gonna have something, they're gonna be looking for it. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if that was in your um, research at all. Of like, I mean, it's one thing to prepare somebody for something, but then it's like oh, if this doesn't happen, that's okay too. Like if you don't have a response yes. like this, that's okay too. Yes. Yes. Because like that could cause a problem mm-hmm. if someone's like, mm-hmm. mm, why am I not freaking out after this difficult circumstance, yes. you know? Yes. You know, the re- the research that I did didn't look at that, but we do, with the clients that we work with, I think it, it is an education piece that we provide, you mm-hmm. know, that, you know, just because it, it didn't affect you that in a way that is maybe deeply impairing it doesn't mean it didn't affect you or it means that or if it affected good. one person that way yes doesn't have to necessarily affect you that way exactly and we all have different resiliency factors and different right. coping mechanisms and all of that so we're just unique i tell people that trauma is as common um, and as unique as the human being that yeah, has it so true mm-hmm. yeah i really liked the part about um you know, giving people guidance, but also flexibility to mm-hmm. do what they need to do in the moment. Mm-hmm. Because if it's too much on the flexibility, do what you need to do in the moment, there's no feeling of, I don't know what, I'm going to have to figure out and shoot mm-hmm. from the hip every time something happens. Yes. And there's yes. some anxiety there. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if it's like, well, I've got a checklist, of think three things I can do. Mm-hmm. And if those three things don't, don't suit the situation, mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. So there's that level mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, anxiety that can happen as well. So mm-hmm. finding that balance uh, sounds like what you've accomplished part, partially well, in your work. Yeah, and, and I think for do- domestic crisis programs specifically, you know, in Kentucky, they are all going to have a residential component. So people living there, right, that, have, that are fleeing um, domestic violence. Right. And then they're going to have those that have been exposed to violence or have been a victim but don't need to live in an emergency shelter, but they still need assistance. And so I think what made it unique in terms of this research is that's a broad spectrum of needs from those that need to live in shelter versus those that keep an outpatient appointment perhaps and how those different um those different requirements um affect staff and affect an organization that's trying to accommodate that broad of a spectrum right yeah so making sure that you got your guidelines in place Mm -hmm. can be challenging with such a broad Mm -hmm. 
organization. But yeah, or, just, or that they're consistently followed consistently and, and followed. equally known, yeah. right? Everybody knows it right. and is doing it. It's tough. And then the other one that you said was a curse in many parts of the helping profession, which is too much paperwork, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I was surprised that that's on there, but it is a contributing factor. If, if not to secondary trauma, certainly to burnout, <laughs> yeah. that our our documentation requirements can be can be actually but that we think is the thing that's that is making us more stable or more professional or more helpful or more accountable um, can also be the thing that's causing um, difficulty for our team. So I don't have a solution for that because most nonprofits, at least I can speak for us, our documentation requirements are so cumbersome because of the grant streams that fund us. And right. so I don't know necessarily how you deal with it, but I think even just acknowledging it, as with anything in mental health, Saying out loud, I have two cavities. <laughs> well, now I have to, there's something required, right? Right. I think even acknowledging to the staff that it is okay that you feel really frustrated and angry and feel like this is a waste of time. That's okay. Right. And we have to do it. But also we have to do mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Cause that's your job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that is true. And it's, you know, we hear about things like, well, I'm, I'm going to turn, turn my head cause I don't want to have to do the paperwork. Mm-hmm. Obviously that's paperwork's a problem if that's mm-hmm. <laughs> causing mm-hmm. the outcome right mm-hmm. you hear about like police officers not wanting to do the paperwork mm-hmm. or something like that you mm-hmm. know we've heard those things or mm-hmm. whatever it's like mm-hmm. well that might be bad then mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. having too much paperwork to mm-hmm. your point mm-hmm. can think it in the way can be a problem mm-hmm. and i've worked for the state before and they well, have a lot of paperwork. Said, you, they love I've paid paperwork. my dues. You have paid your dues. <laughs> yeah. Anybody that has worked for the state or federal government um, yeah. certainly has paid their dues. So you yourself, you do uh, some therapy at Merriman. Yes. Uh, and also spend most of your time or a large portion of your time doing the mm-hmm. administrative stuff, but you're still doing some things. I do. I carry a small caseload of about eight to 10 clients, um, probably a little heavier than I need. So I'm going to be kind of lightening that a little bit, but coming through postdoc and those kinds of things, you have to have those caseloads. But one thing I I do so appreciate it though, is it does connect, keep me connected right to the, to the heartbeat of what we do. And that's for people to heal and to be restored and and recovered. So easy to lose track of that. If you're just seeing the spreadsheets all day long. Yeah, Yeah. it is. And yet the administrative side of an organization like ours, you know, is taxing and, and you know, it has to be done and I enjoy it. We have a great team. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, the, it's not, I think maybe back to the con part of nonprofit is it's <laughs> not just that one thing, right? So it's fundraising, mm-hmm. it's donor development, it's board development, mm-hmm. it's, you know, staff recruitment and retention, it's finances, you know, it's programs, it's all of that. So right. I think while that is for people who love nonprofit, I think that's the energizing part, right? I don't get bored. I have more than one thing. Mm-hmm. And I think the con to it is sometimes, you know, you're, you can be a jack of all trades, but then really a master of none. So, you know, it's a constant tightrope, I think. Now, generally Merriman House, it's a big nonprofit for a town our size, right? You know, I think so. When I came to Merriman House in 2012, we had about 17 employees, maybe one or two less. And right now we're right at 50 employees. Yeah. It's it's huge for a, Mm -hmm. 
uh, area like this, mm-hmm. which is great. Mm-hmm. It provides a lot of service. It does, and I it's think it's been that around a long time. It has. We've been going since 1978. Mm-hmm. Um, now there is. This is a little fun fact of sort of you know the family behind the scenes argument. So our founder, who is very much alive and well, yeah. um, Merriman Kemp, right? She says that date is wrong. The, okay. That date is wrong. Well, it was okay. not 1978, and she should know. <laughs> I would think that she gets the final word. That's yeah. right. The so namesake, every, yeah. Yes, every time she says no, you know, it was 77. I just, I acknowledge. I say, you, of course, yes, mm. ma'am, you would know. And all of our incorporation <laughs> paperwork says something different. So um, I don't know. That'll be one of those things that sort of lives in infamy, but sort of on the professional, you know, Actual record, it is 1978, so 40 plus years, I guess, uh, we've been doing this work. Yeah, well, it's, you know, if, you, if you're kind of starting the project or you're on the front end of it, mm-hmm. for you, it starts way earlier yes. than when it's recognized yes. with a stamp. So, yes, yes. exactly. Our first date of publication. Yes. <laughs> you were uh, seeing the uh, your project come to fruition with mm-hmm. your paper way before the uh, mm-hmm. the date of defense. Exactly, <laughs> so, exactly. So, so it just I, kind of depends on perspective. It there, does, it? it does. The topic of domestic violence in general mm-hmm. is a problem, obviously, but based on some Google searching, I have found that, mm-hmm. uh, which sometimes Google is right, I have found that currently, unfortunately, Kentucky's got some rates that rank mm-hmm. worst in the United States for that. Right. And as I was just saying, talking about how great of a service Merriman um, provides, there's still some limitations on mm-hmm. what people have access to uh, in other areas. I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I think sometimes we let those numbers just just fly by us. I mean, think mm. about that. The worst in the nation. Yeah, it was for like intimate one in, partner violence. They said one in four women. Mm-hmm. One in seven. Men, uh-huh. yeah, depending on that? yes, the static can be yeah. anywhere between one and six and one and nine. Okay, um, but yes, so one in four, and there is some argument and some newer research that's starting to look like we're closer to one in three, even though we're oh. staying one in four. Right. Um, so absolutely, I think I want people to know they're listening so are these today. Stats that like physical violence. Yeah, they they're, they are. Um, Let's get some definition here. You know what? That's that's actually a really good point. Yes. So most of the time, what is characterized there would be, yes, they're a victim of some sort of actual act of violence at some point in their life. Um, and I think when we look at the, yeah, the scope of the, the legal definition, right, mm-hmm. of domestic violence, it can be so much more right. than in a physical act of violence. So it's that fear of right. um, the inflicting yeah. of harm. So um, that harm can come in emotional, psychological ways. It can come in physical ways, sexual ways, financial ways, um, you know. Domestic abuse versus violence. There's a differentiating factor there. Or are those just synonymous generally? I think, I think for practical purposes, they're synonymous. Okay. You know, because what we know about domestic violence is it... It, it likes to operate on a continuum, so mm-hmm. it's, it, it sort of is progressive. Right. The problem is it's not always progressive. Yeah. And so we can have a situation to the, I guess maybe to the outside observer, right. that there's no violence in this relationship, and then there's a murder. Yeah. Right. So it looks like we just jumped, you know, right. all the way here to the yeah. worst case scenario, and yeah. yet that happens. Right. And so I think what makes it so dangerous and so deadly and also difficult mm. to sort of, you know, intervene is... 
sometimes domestic violence can sort of live in this gray area of, is that really domestic Mm -hmm. violence? Is that really not? And that power and control element Mm -hmm. that the abuser is using to keep that individual right in Mm -hmm. that relationship, then before you know it, we may not get any warning before we have a a death. And so, um, I don't know. I don't remember the original question, but I, think uh, I was just trying to kind of help us define terms when mm-hmm. it comes to domestic violence mm-hmm. and versus and really domestic abuse is the same, mm-hmm. same, same there. But I, domestic I think violence would definition would be what? I think it's any, um, I think I would define it as any uh, act that is used to issue power and control over another um, to the point where then these other things, this fear occurs. So I think the legal definition, of course, is going to say bodily harm, sexual assault, but there's this fear of. Right. So if, if I if invoke but the fear that I'm going to do those things, that can be very subtle, you, very yes, uh, you know, covert as much as over. Yes, the power absolutely. dynamic. For yes, sure. and yeah. so sometimes I say to people, you know, I grew up in a home, Justin, where um, you know my dad was a yeller. He mm. he raised his voice, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think sometimes people get nervous. They're like, oh my gosh, you know, like I yell at my house, you know, that, and (laughs) and I think what I try to tell them is an unhealthy, uh, behavior or relationship or communication style doesn't equal domestic violence. It's that dynamic of power and control. So if you, so if I punch my hand through the wall to get you to do what I want you to do, I didn't hit you, but the implied there is I could hit you, right? Right. I could do this or that. You know, if I take your keys every time we get mad and you can't leave your house, right. I've, that power and control has controlled your actual physical movement. So, right. you know, or if I berate you um, and and then out of that berating, I get you to do what I want you to do, right? That mm-hmm. That's on that continuum mm-hmm. of domestic violence. And so I really like to tell folks you're really listening and looking for the power and control. That is your sort of mm-hmm. set apart. That's good. And that can, you know, like I was saying, that can be so subtle. It could be passive aggressive or you don't mm-hmm. have to raise a voice to, mm-hmm. to do that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's mm-hmm. that power and control though. That's mm-hmm. important mm-hmm. to look for, for sounds like for your education mm-hmm. of those in the community. That's mm-hmm. what you really, and so many, what I've been blown away of over the years is, um, you know, I worked for years at, at a sexual assault child advocacy center. And so, mm. you know, when you're talking about sexual assault, you're talking about the, the underbelly, right? The worst right. of the worst of what you can yeah. do to another human. Correct. So I sort of lived in this place of, well, this is the worst, right? This is the worst. And so, yeah. um, and when I came into the field of domestic violence, what I was sickened to learn, and I think what I was so shocked to learn is that domestic violence encompasses the worst so it's so broad right not that it's better or worse none of it's good Mm -hmm. but but we we see people who who have been sexually assaulted within the domestic violence relationship but it's ongoing it's chronic right there's that threat and so i i'd like i don't like to say i actually hate to say but i think it's important to say Domestic violence is so far reaching mm-hmm. and so long lasting in its layers and its effects that I do think the effects on the community, on the family unit and on the individual can be catastrophic. Um, yeah. Some just ripple effects that I can think of. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. We'll, we'll roll with it and see mm-hmm. what happens. Mm-hmm. Is that if you 
are in a place where you're supposed to be safe mm-hmm. and you're not. Mm-hmm. Just like every time you go there, you don't feel that security mm-hmm. and safety. Mm-hmm. I mean, the ripple effects of that mm-hmm. fact just mm-hmm. go through every portion of your life. Mm-hmm. You know, it could lead to all sorts of things that mm-hmm. a person shouldn't be getting into mm-hmm. because they can't just mm-hmm. go home and feel safe. Mm-hmm. So, And so many of the victims that I sit across from or survivors perhaps is, is a more accurate term because there truly are victims in domestic violence that they lose their life, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that they don't even see that they are a victim. They, mm. they, they'll often say to me, well, but I'm not like, and there's this awkward pause and I just sort of sit there like, mm. we mean like a real victim. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not a real one. Like, cause you didn't get punched. Does that make you more real? Right. And I can just sort of see the wheels like, and it's that, well, I don't, I don't know. You yeah. know, I don't know. And so as you, as we talk through what is domestic violence, what is the cycle of violence? What does it look like? Mm. How does it show up? You can sort of see this, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. you know, I absolutely am a victim of those things. It's just like anything, whenever you're in the middle of it, mm-hmm. it's so much harder to recognize mm-hmm. than if you're on the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I'm not like that person that I saw in the movies, and then you start talking about it. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, kind of am mm-hmm. like the person I saw in the movies, mm-hmm. you know? And so people don't reach out for help because, because I don't think they there's don't anything see to reach their, out. Yes. Is it, theirs is as bad because they don't get the experience. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's mm-hmm. totally right. Because they only see the bad in someone else's situation, so it's like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. you're the real, you're a real victim. And mm-hmm. it's like sometimes it's I'm not getting abused, mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. keeps me from being a victim because Correct. only this little bit of time does it happen or whatever. Yes, yeah. and that will be the last time, and it it'll won't be the happen right, again. Exactly. right? Yeah, it'll be the last time. Yeah, and two, I think just letting listeners know, you know, so much in our world is black and white, and yet there's so much that is not. And so I think one thing that is not black and white is, you know, this is a relationship as unhealthy as it might be. It is still a relationship. And so Mm -hmm. in that relationship, there are going to be feelings of love and feelings of being valued and feelings of family and, and hopes and dreams and, you know, bonds. And yet there's also this Mm -hmm. evil side or this hard side or this, dangerous side or this hurtful side Mm -hmm. and and how do I wrestle with that like at what point yeah and how do I do that and so helping listeners and helping clients see that you can sit in this space with me and you may shed tears about how much you love this person that you share children with this person you Mm -hmm. shared a career with this person and they harm you Mm -hmm. and it's dangerous and it can change and we have to we have to figure that out. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's another part of that really hard paradox, um, that people find themselves in. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not. Yes. And, you know, just intermittently reinforced Mm -hmm. is the hardest thing to break. Right. So sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's not keeps us waiting for that next time when it's not going to be bad. Right. There's like, I don't know what the name of the bias would be, but there's gotta be a bias in that Mm -hmm. mindset there of it. It's not going to happen again. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Something that we can't see in the future, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. but yeah, that's a, that's a challenge to educate, a challenge Mm -hmm. to treat, Mm -hmm. challenge to live through Mm -hmm. number one, Mm -hmm. to be resilient, but you get a lot of reward out of your work. You see some resilient Mm -hmm. folks Mm -hmm. come out the other side of that. Yes. 
Yes. And I, and I don't mean this. I know some people you think really, but I truly love my job. I love it. I love, I just enjoy it. And so, yes. Oh my goodness. The reward of um, little victories and big ones, you Mm -hmm. know, Uh, and setbacks because it, it causes us as an organization to think, where are we missing it? Right. Or, Mm. Or what can we do differently? Or, what is something we can at least predict for the next survivor that comes in and, and they fall into that pitfall. Right. So it's not easy work. Don't, don't miss here, <laughs> but it no, is enjoyable work. Easy and enjoyable are certainly not synonymous. Mm-hmm. Not by any means. Earlier episode, not long before I talked with uh, the guests, we talked about burnout at work mm-hmm. and uh, the main factor that I believe rings true on preventing burnout mm-hmm is finding value mm-hmm. that if you're able to find value in your work, mm-hmm. then it's going to keep you from burning out. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if you work 60 hours a week, 10 mm-hmm. hours a week, that doesn't to me determine in itself, mm-hmm. if you're going to burn out, mm-hmm. it's more about what are you doing? Are you finding value? Mm-hmm. Are you able to uh, contribute? So it sounds like that is undoubtedly the mm-hmm. case for you mm-hmm. that you're finding value yes. in your work and, it's always good to get those success stories and mm-hmm. see people grow and mm-hmm. um, get that occasionally in my field as well. I work yeah. with couples a lot and oh, yes. specializing couples work actually. And just so many times I'm like, what am I doing for these people? <laughs> <laughs> but then <laughs> yesterday I just happened to get one of those days where it was like, all right, well, I don't think I need to come here anymore. It's like, all right, well, I'm glad to work yeah. with you. He's like, I just need you to know that I don't think I'd be married right now if it wasn't for you. Yes. It's just like, wow, that's, that's making an impact on the world. So, yes, absolutely. Um, it's part of the, the good part about being in the helping field Mm -hmm. is getting those sort of human connections Mm -hmm. and making a difference in the world. So you are certainly doing that to a large degree. So anyways, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. This has been Mapping Healthy Minds, a podcast that explores the intersection of mental health and life. For more episodes, you can find the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and we are also on social media sites, Facebook and Instagram. Website for the show is mappinghealthyminds.com, which has access to all the episodes that we've recorded so far and a little bit more about the show. Thanks so much for listening, and if you enjoyed the show, give us a review or tell a friend. It's the best way for us to pass the word on to other people. Mapping Healthy Minds is brought to you by Compass Counseling and is produced and hosted by yours truly, Justin Lewis.